Today is Palm Sunday, the day on which Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a young donkey. This day has been described by Christians for generations as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But have you ever asked yourself, if this was a triumphal entry, then why did they crucify Jesus at the end of the week? Even the compilers of the Revised Common Lectionary realize that this Sunday is a problem for us because they give us two gospel readings. One reading is called the Palms reading. No, not palm reading, but palms because of the palm fronds that those who greet Jesus place before him. The other reading is called the Passion reading. Because the suffering of Christ at the end of this week is called the Passion of Christ. Mel Gibson made a movie with that title a few years ago that depicts his view of the last hours of Jesus. So we have a problem today that we need to address. If this is such a glorious Sunday for all Christians, what goes wrong by Friday? That Jesus will find himself betrayed by one of his own disciples, arrested by the high priest guard, accused by an alliance of religious leaders, tried by the Roman governor, and sentenced to die a death of a common criminal, death by crucifixion. You might not know that Jesus' procession into Jerusalem was not the only procession the city saw that day. Roman historians recalled that the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, led a procession of Roman cavalry and centurions into the city of Jerusalem. For a moment, I'm reminded of Monty Python and the life of Brian, a film I did not want to watch for many years as I was led to believe that it was irreverent. Imagine the spectacle of that entry. No, not Brian's. From the western side of the city, the opposite side from which Jesus enters, Pontius Pilate leads Roman soldiers on horseback and on foot. Each soldier was clad in leather armor, polished to a high gloss. On each centurion's head, hammered helmets gleamed in the bright sunlight. At their sides, sheathed in their scabbards, were swords crafted from the hardest steel. And in their hands, each centurion carried a spear. Or if he was an archer, a bow with a sling of arrows across his back. Drummers beat out the cadence of march, for this was no ordinary entry into Jerusalem. Pilate, as governor of the region, which included not only Judea, but Samaria and Edom, knew it was standard practice for the Roman governor of a foreign territory to be in the capital for religious celebrations. It was the beginning of Passover, a Jewish festival that the Romans allowed. However, 
the Romans must have been aware that the festival celebrated the liberation of the Jews from another empire, the empire of Egypt. So Pilate had to be in Jerusalem. Since the Romans had occupied this land by defeating the Jews and deposing their king about 80 years before, uprisings were always in the air. The last major uprising long before Pilate's time had been after the death of Herod the Great in 4 BC. The uprising started in Sepphoris, about five miles from Jesus' childhood home of Nazareth. Before it was over, the city of Sepphoris, the capital of Galilee, and the town of Emmaus had been destroyed by the Roman army. After putting down the rebellion there, the Romans marched on to Jerusalem. After calming the city, they crucified over 2,000 Jews who were accused of being part of the rebellion. The Romans have made their intolerance for rebellion well known. And so on this occasion, Pilate had traveled with a contingent of Rome's finest from his preferred headquarters in Caesarea by the sea to the stuffy, crowded provincial capital of the Jews, Jerusalem. The temple would be the center of Passover activity. Antonian's fortress, the Roman garrison, built adjacent to the temple compound, would serve as a good vantage point from which to keep an eye on the Jews. Pilate's entry into Jerusalem was meant, meant to send a message to the Jews and to those who might be plotting against the empire of Rome. The spectacle was to remind the Jews of what had happened the last time of a wide-scale uprising. And it was meant to intimidate the citizens of Jerusalem themselves. They might think twice about joining such a rebellion if it was slated to fail. But as I said, this was a day of two processions. Let's go back to Jesus and his entry into Jerusalem. If Pilate's procession was meant as a show of military might and strength, Jesus' procession was meant to show the opposite. Both Matthew and Mark record Jesus' own words as he instructs his disciples to go into the city and find a donkey. They are to ask the owner if they may use the donkey. And they are to say that the Lord needs them. Then Jesus quotes from Zechariah chapter 9. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But there is more in this passage than just a description of Jesus' means of transport for that day. The prophet Zechariah is speaking to the nation. In Zechariah 9, the prophet reassures his, the people of Judah, called Judea in the New Testament, that God has not forgotten them. 
but I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now I am keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. And the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In other words, Jesus' quote from the prophet Zechariah reminded those who heard him of the entire passage. The message they heard was, God will deliver the nation from the oppressor, in this case, Rome. But the king they seek will come to them humbly, not on a horse of war, but on a slow-moving donkey. The symbol of a king who comes in peace, according to Zechariah. The two processions could not be more different in the messages they convey. Pilate, leading Roman centurions, declares the power and might of the empire of Rome, which crushes all who oppose it. While Jesus, riding on a young donkey, embodies the peace and tranquility that the shalom that God brings to his people. You see, those who watch that day will make a choice. They will either serve the God of this world, might and power, or they would choose to serve the king of a very different kind of kingdom, the kingdom of God. But there is another problem. In their book titled Leadership on the Line, authors Marty Linsky and Ron Heifetz define leadership this way. Leadership is about disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. So Jesus has another problem. Of course, his followers and others will get caught up in his entry into Jerusalem. And they think that they are choosing to follow Jesus. But by the end of the week, Jesus will have disappointed the crowd at a rate faster than they can stand. They will turn on him. Even the closest to Jesus, the twelve disciples, will either betray him outright or abandon him in confusion and fear. It's interesting to note that the crowd on that Sunday proclaimed, Hosanna to the son of David. In other words, they were placing their faith in Jesus, that he would restore the glory of the nation to its splendor when David and his son Solomon ruled a united kingdom. This is what the Jews wanted, to be ruled by a man like David, a man so committed to God 
that the Old Testament prophets had proclaimed that the coming Messiah would sit on the throne of his father, David. The Messiah would bring back the glory of Israel, would rid the nation of oppressors, would rule generously, and would be kind to the common people. Jesus had already challenged the rulers of Judea, not the Roman rulers, but the local rulers. He had said to them that the temple was not the only way to find God's forgiveness, and further, that the temple would be destroyed, with not one stone left on another. Of course, those who made their living from the temple, like the scribes, the chief priests, and his priests, the ruling council of the Sanhedrin, and the religious parties, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, would all lose their power and prestige if there was no temple. Or even if the temple were no longer the only place where one could be forgiven by God. So when Jesus miraculously saves the lame man by first saying, your sins are forgiven, and then healing him, he challenged the authority of the temple system. And when Jesus drove the money changers from the temple, proclaiming that the temple was to be a house of prayer for all nations, but that the religious leaders had made it a den of thieves, Jesus exposed the corruption of the temple tax, the scandalous monetary exchange rate, and the dishonesty of those who sold animals to sacrifice. Jesus had disappointed and alienated powerful people. He did so because the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes, most of the Levitical priests, and others who ruled on Rome's behalf were part of the same system of oppression and domination that Pilate was part of. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem may or may not have been planned to occur on the same day as Pilate's procession through the western gate of the city. Whether it was planned or not, the two processions provided a contrast that was unmistakable a contrast between kings and kingdoms was on display that day. And although many of the common people thought they sided with Jesus, they did so for the same reasons as the Pharisees and others sided with Rome. They thought Jesus could do for them what Rome had done for the rulers, make their lives better deliver them from the oppressive system under which they lived and worked, and turn the tables on the Romans. That is why the crowds turn on Jesus by the end of the week. They don't think he's going to do any of these things. 
their religious leaders, all of them, who never agree on anything, agree that Jesus is going to attract the attention of the Roman Empire, especially during Passover. And Rome will come down fast and hard on the entire nation. Have a look at John 11 and see Caiaphas' speech. So when Jesus is accused, when he is brought by Pilate before the angry mobs, they want to get rid of him. Jesus, in their minds, never did what they wanted him to do. He never defeated the Romans. He never dissolved the unfair tax system. He never put common people in charge of the government. And furthermore, he never would. To appease the crowds that swelled the city of Jerusalem, Pilate had the custom of releasing prisoners, many of whom were political prisoners. But on this last week in the life of Jesus, Pilate offers the crowd a choice between Barabbas, a known robber, and Jesus. Fearing that if Jesus were released, he would start all over again. The crowd asked for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be executed. And not just by any means. Crucify him, was their cry. Because crucifixion was the one form of capital punishment that would show Rome, the Jews, were completely loyal and would humiliate Jesus even in death. But I'm getting ahead of the story of this week, the story which we will conclude next Sunday. But for one moment, ask yourself, if I had been in Jerusalem that day and had seen both processions passing by, which would I have chosen to follow? Because that is the choice we make each day, to choose power and might over love, to choose the way things are done over the way God intends them to be. Two processions, two theologies, two choices. Which would you choose? I wonder, would you take off your cloak and lay it down at the feet of Jesus? Amen.